0: I'm not going to deny that this is a confronting passage. Um, maybe you felt confronted when it was read. Maybe you felt pained. Maybe you wonder how such strong language could be matched up with what we know of the Gospel of Grace. It might feel like a bit of a sudden and maybe unsavory change of topic from. The call to not boast in the apostles, not to boast in themselves, but to imitate Paul as their father in Christ, that call to, to relational, caring, loving discipleship. To what I feel like is very harsh confrontation, how to deal with this man who's committing sexual immorality. Well, in reality those two issues are actually connected. Paul hasn't just changed to topic here, he's actually flowing from what he's already been saying. That's why he says in verse 6, your boasting is not good, that's what he's been uh, addressing in the last four chapters. Their overinflated inflated view of themselves and the way that they hold in too high regard those who have worldly status, they are willing to overlook or to explain away the sinful lifestyle of one of their respective members. So, this man married his stepmother, his father's second wife. Uh, Why, we don't know. It's uh, possible that it could have been a financial reason to make sure that his inheritance stayed in the family. There could have been many factors at play, not to mention the fact that it wasn't uncommon for a widower to marry, remarry a woman who was quite a bit younger than himself. So this man's stepmother could have been around his age or even younger than him. What it wasn't was selfless care for this woman who was a widow, both the law of Moses but also the laws of the Greeks and the Romans prohibited marrying your father's wife or your stepmother. Leviticus 18:8 8 says, "You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife." That's a, that's a euphemism for sexual intimacy. It is your father's nakedness. So, the law of Moses prohibited it, but also, as I said, the Greeks and the Romans saw it as taboo as well. So, we don't know the exact scenario, we don't know the the back story, but we do know that this man's actions should immediately have raised a red flag. When pagan culture recognises and practices a standard that is there in God's law, even when they don't have any knowledge of the written law, it's a great shame on those people when we ignore it or we are blatant in our transgression of it. Because all people are made in the image of God, because we are designed specifically to live according to God's character that's revealed in the law, not even our... Our sinfulness has erased or distorted or fully distorted our knowledge of good and evil. This is called common grace. God in His mercy and His patience is actively holding back restraining evil so that in this life we don't experience what it would be like if human sinfulness was carried out to its fullest extent. That's why almost all human cultures recognise the need for justice, for authority, for rules to govern society and their lives. So Paul tells us in Romans 2, when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, or well, their conscience also bears witness and then conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. That's that, is this right, is that wrong that goes on in the heart of every human being. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It then goes on a little bit later, so you call out those men who have the law but disobey it. You then who teach others do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who are idols, do you rob temples? You who place in the law, this honour God, by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is the same principle that Paul's using here, in 1 through this. He's saying you should know better because you actually have scriptures. In fact, your standards should be higher than your paid neighbors because while they, all they have is their consciences and the consensus of society, you have the clear word of God. Even more than that though, in the Gospel, You've been set free from the law of sin and death. You've been brought into the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He gives you power by His spirit to say no to sin. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer forced to do sin's bidding. You're no longer powerless to resist. Instead you're a child and a servant of God and you're you're free to obey him in joyful thankfulness. Now why had no one then responded to this man's latent sin? Again we don't know for sure. Maybe it was because he was a wealthy and respected man. Maybe, maybe he was exercising some of the spiritual gifts which in their eyes demonstrated his high level of spirituality. Maybe he held a position in the church. Maybe he'd been given that position because of this spirituality that he demonstrated but he hadn't actually been properly tested according to the standard of godliness and love. We don't know the exact reason but we do know it was a proof of boasting in people not in Christ and the gospel. So this isn't just a moral issue, it's a Gospel issue. Their boasting undermines the message of the cross and as a result their lifestyle undermines the promise that God's power through the Gospel has the power to save and the power to transform someone's life so that they uh, begin to live with God honouring righteousness. So what's ultimately at stake here is the glory of God, the truthfulness, the honour of God. What a terrible thing to hear those words. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Father's goal for us, his people, is that we might be to the praise of his glory. So if we're working, if we're living in a way that is not for his glory, we're actually working against God Himself. So this is a very serious matter and because it's a serious matter the action that needs to be taken then is also quite drastic. Paul Paul says that him who has done this be removed from among you and then at the end in verse 13 purge the evil person from among you. That's a quote from Leviticus from the Law. Now in the Law this phrase, according to the evil person from among you, occurs a number of times always used in the context of capital punishment, the, the death penalty. everything. In Israel any crime that involved idolatry, leading others into idolatry, or Doing anything that was demeaning, degrading, or destroying the life of another human being made in the image of God was punishable by death. To put it another way, any blatant, defiant rejection of the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and the command to love your neighbour as yourself. Now we don't have the death penalty anymore, at least in Australia, but we still practice the same principles, don't we, here in our nation. We have justice that's not merely about punishing the wrongdoer, but about protecting the community by removing that wrongdoer from society by putting them in prison. And this is in the hope. That when they've served their sentence and their release, they'll actually be reformed and they'll no longer be a threat to the community and people's safety or them. We should recognise that we have this reformatory view of justice in Australia because of the influence of the Gospel in the West. Because of the principle that every person, no matter how badly they have behaved, should still be given an opportunity to repent, to receive forgiveness, to be restored. So we don't have the death penalty but we we still carry out that principle, remove the evil person from among you. Well the church isn't an earthly kingdom like Israel was so we don't practice justice in the way that earthly governments do. If you sin, I'm not going to lock you in the closet to do your sentence. But the Old Testament principle of capital punishment has been translated then into the New Testament principle of excommunication or church discipline. As a practice that unfortunately has been abused in some places where the church has been overzealous in uh, judging and disciplining people. But it's also been neglected in other places, where, like in current, where things are just overlooked and glossed over. Both uh, have caused harm, both to the person and to the church of which they are part. Even um, to to not deal with open and public sin is to actually deny. Grace. Grace isn't accepting everyone just as they are. Overlooking sin, as if it doesn't really matter. That's not how God has dealt with us, is it? In order for God to show us grace, drastic measures were required. His grace required full expression of His wrath to be poured out on Jesus' God's grace doesn't do away with justice. It simply means that when justice comes the sinner whose faith is in Jesus has that justice turned aside from them and placed on Jesus in their place. So grace takes sin as a deadly serious thing. Grace would not be amazing if it were not the fact that it saved a wretch like me, not just someone who's not too bad. A wretch is what makes grace so amazing. The fact that sin is high treason against God Himself. The fact that sin renders us deserving of an eternity separated from the goodness of God, as Jesus put it the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing and teeth. No one spoke more about God's judgments in the Bible than Jesus himself. Grace comes to us not because there's something, no matter how small within us that deserves it, because grace is undeserved. It's in fact the opposite of what we deserve. So to make light of sin is to make light of grace. You ever find that you're beginning to lose the wonder of God's grace to you in Jesus Christ? Maybe it's because you've begun to become complacent about your own sin. Maybe you've begun to talk yourself into believing that you're somehow better than how the Bible describes us. Maybe you've begun to believe the soft talk of the world that says actually within you is inherent greatness. You just need to realise your own goodness. So all church discipline must start with self-discipline. We must all, each one of us, hear the call to not receive the grace of God in vain. To earnestly desire to live lives that display the fruit of grace. This humility then requires us to be open, to be willing, to be even happy then to receive correction from one another. Normally, other people are better than us at recognizing our shortcomings and our failures. And it's a gift of the Father then that He puts us in the church, where, as Proverbs 27:19 says. Iron sharpens iron one man sharpens another. We rub up against one another and the first thing we tend to notice is one another's faults and failings and sinfulness. It's far from easy to receive correction from the brother or sister in Christ. Very hard thing to do. Probably feels even harder maybe to give correction in a gracious and loving way. Maybe that's why we tend to prefer just to bottle it up and ignore it or maybe gossip about it with everyone else except that person. Most church divisions and frictions would be easily avoided if we were just lovingly and humbly give and receive correction, being ready to offer and to ask for forgiveness. Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 is really clear on this, that loving one another in this way must always precede any kind of official church discipline. It's only when that self-discipline and the loving one another has failed that the church itself steps in. So he says, if he or your brother who has sinned against you refuses to listen to them, the witnesses that are there, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now this isn't a call to shun that person, or to cut them out of your life. Because how did Jesus treat the Gentiles and tax collectors? those that society at the time called sinners, well, he ate them. He invited them into his kingdom. He offered them forgiveness and grace. But it wasn't cheap grace. He required repentance and faith, and he called for fruit in keeping with repentance. Remember the woman caught in adultery after all the men who had stones ready to stone him had dropped their stones and walked away, as Jesus said, let he who is without sin pass the first stone. And he stood there as the only one without sin who was qualified to throw the first stone. He said, is there, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you go now and leave, and from now on sin no more, leave your life of sin. So he offers grace and forgiveness but it's not cheap grace, he also requires repentance. Now the narrative that we're hearing from the world today is that to truly last someone, we must include them in everything, uh, embrace not only them but their lifestyle choices even to the point of celebrating their lifestyle choices. Well the narrative of Jesus echoed in the Scriptures is that true love is willing to say to a person, I love you as someone made in the image of God. However, your lifestyle choice means that you are excluding yourself from the community of those who want to see the fruit of righteousness being worked out in their lives. By choosing something that brings dishonour to Christ, you're disqualifying yourself from participation in activities that are designed to honour him. And this was the case of this man in Corinth. It wasn't that he was a, a Christian struggling with sin, like we all do occasionally stumbling, occasionally making mistakes, occasionally letting his flesh have its way over over love from time to time. His sin was open and blatant and public. It was bringing the name of Christ into disrepute. It was leading others astray and it was endangering his own soul. So it called for drastic measures. We should note that the first reason that Paul gives for excommunicating this man is his own sake, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So this was first and foremost an act of love towards this man. If he's living in such a way, we must question whether he's really heard and believed the Gospel, because his life is displaying fruit that conveys the exact concept. So for his sake, he must be shown that claiming to be a Christian isn't enough to make him a Christian. Holding a position in the church isn't enough. Even practicing spiritual and religious activities that were seen to be great marks of spirituality, even that is not enough. The mark of a true faith in Christ is a life lived to the glory of Christ. And if he's willing to practice a lifestyle that's antithetical to the glory of Christ then he needs to be called to repent and to believe the Gospel all over again. Later this year when we get up to Second Corinthians we'll read what is most likely Paul's follower to this situation. It seems that the Corinthians did listen to Paul and they did do what he said. They disciplined this man, but they went too far. They acted as if his his excommunication was final. Once he was out, he was out for good. But Paul's aim here is not punishment, it's restoration. See what he says in 2 Corinthians 2. Now if anyone has caused pain... He is supported not to me but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. It seems that this man did repent. He was either renewed <coughs> in his faith, or maybe he actually brought his faith in Jesus for the first time because he realised his prior uh, facade was just a facade. The goal is that they would be able to reaffirm their love for him, not that he would be cut off (coughs) forever. The second reason for this act of discipline is for the sake of the church, see in verses 6 and 7. Just as society is protected from harm by removing those who cause harm to other people's well-being, so Jesus, who is the good shepherd who cares for his flock will not tolerate harm being done to those of his flock. There are times when the welfare of the flock, including those who are vulnerable, those who are weak, within the flock, take priority over the person who poses danger to them. I want to share a, an example, a, a case study that, um, where, I, where I was in a place where I had to put into practice the principles from this passage. A few years ago, it came to my attention that a student who was a member of ES at was acting inappropriately towards, there was a male acting inappropriately towards one of the women in the group. He was spoken to and told to stop. But he continued, and he did it in a very public and open way. So we responded by removing him from membership in the group. We told him to stop attending our meetings. We offered a way of restoration. We said, apologise to the people that you hurt, and seek counselling to deal with your pattern of. Destructive and unhelpful behaviours. Well, he refused the offer. He tried to attend events and had to be turned away at the door. We even had to contact university security uh, to make sure that they were aware of what was going on. He even hopped on a bus when he travelled to Sydney to confront our national director at his home in Sydney. And then, we received in the mail a letter from the courts. He'd file a lawsuit against us to get his membership back into the group. Now all through this time he maintained his claim that he was committed to the Christian faith, that he was following Jesus. But what did his actions communicate? If his heart was soft towards God, if he wanted to grow in Christ likeness, then we'd expect him to listen and to repent and to be corrected rather than trying to get his own way by suing us. Now can I judge where he stands before the Lord? That's not my call. But because their behaviour towards those that he called his brothers and sisters in Christ was even worse than what our non-Christian neighbours would consider acceptable. We had to Treat him as if he were an unbeliever. It wasn't easy. I've known him for a number of years. I've had a number of good conversations with him about his faith. He'd even been actively involved in helping with the ministry on campus. But the well-being of God's people and the reputation of the gospel took the priority. Well, Paul doesn't use a, a, uh, an image of a shepherd's life here. He uses the image of a lump of dough. Leaven is a small piece of mixture that's used to make sourdough. I've got one brewing in a glass pot on my kitchen bench as I speak. It's um, all away with all of the, the yeast, um, having a good time in there. And you take a piece out and you mix it with the dough and, and you bread. The natural yeast causes the bread to rise. Now Jesus used this imagery of leaven and a dough and a lump of dough in a positive way when describing the Kingdom of God. But more often in the Scriptures it's used in a negative way. Our sin, no matter how large, no matter how small, open or hidden, always has an effect. On our people. Because sin is not loving God and it's not loving our neighbour. Now we might say, well, what happens in a bedroom between two consenting adults is none of our business. They're not harming anyone else. Uh, well, that would only be true if they were the only two people in the world. And even then, by stepping out of the gospel design for them, they will be bringing harm to one another and to themselves. Accepting or tolerating blatantly sinful behaviour communicates to others this isn't really sin. If, if it's okay for them, then it's okay for you. As I've already said, it diminishes our view of God's grace. If robs us of the wonder of the gospel and our confidence in its power to transform. Church that tolerates blatant sin, if it hasn't already lost the gospel, will very quickly do so. This image of leaven is used here not just because it's a common idea that people then would have understood, it's also here because it points us to the story of. The Passover and how Christ has fulfilled it. Remember, I said that Christ crucified is the embodiment of the wisdom of God. And so, uh, right through this letter, Paul is just taking us back to the cross of Christ as the foundation for how we deal with these very practical issues in our lives and in our church. This man's sin cannot be dealt with apart from. Knowing Christ crucified. Laying down is always the solution. Cheap grace no and overlooking it isn't the solution. It's only in the cross that we see mercy and justice perfectly combined. So, on the night of the Passover, the Israelites were instructed to make bread without leaven, without yeast. And that was because they needed to be ready to leave straight away. And as I'm learning, Leavened bread takes a week to prepare before you're actually ready to mix the dough and put it in the oven. The Passover meal that night then consisted of the lamb that had been sacrificed, blood painted on the four frames, and unleavened bread. And after the Exodus, Israel was commanded to celebrate The festival of Passover every year by eating the same meal of lamb and unleavened bread. And they were to remove anything in their home that contained leaven. Over time, this led up to a, uh, developed into a uh, a family ritual involving every member of the household where covers would be swept out and uh, every corner of the home would be cleaned in case there was one tiny piece of leaven there and then everything that was swept up would be burned. That's where we get the term spring cleaning from. Because in the Northern Hemisphere Passover happens at springtime and everyone cleans their house thoroughly. By New Testament times the Passover was also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because as important have unleavened bread as it was to have the Passover lamb. If you had the lamb but then you ate it with leavened bread, you would have broken the rules for Passover. What a fool you would have been to go to all that trouble to get the lamb and to have it sacrificed only to render it useless by the simple act of not eating leavened bread. Not eating unleavened bread, I should say. So it's in light of the sacrifice of Christ that we should strive for the peace and the holiness that the Father's discipline brings us. Not only does this on Christ and give testimony to the incomparably great power of His death but it's also what's best for His people as He brings us to maturity. But the cross is much more than just a moral motivator. It's not just to see what How great Christ has done for you and you have to somehow match that by doing great things with Him. It's not just a motivator or a guilt trip. If we are to celebrate this festival with the the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, then we first need to buy ourselves in union with Christ a Passover Lamb. Just as the Egyptians died to their old life in Egypt and through that sacrifice of the land they stepped into the new life that they would have as God's people. So too, we need to come to the place where we can say, I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself. Or me. If, if I have died with Christ that me, the selfish me that wants to live for myself has died, then I'm not going to be afraid when my brothers and sisters come and speak the truth in love to me. I don't need to be threatened by thinking they've noticed my weaknesses and my failures or if they point out my sins my identity isn't in what they say about me, my identity is in who I am in Christ, in whom I died and be raised to him. Sincerity, sincerity is a word that we've seen before. It's that word being judged by the sunlight. It means being without hypocrisy. When a cloth is held up to the sunlight, There are no hidden stains that suddenly become apparent as the light shines through them. It's not a call to be perfect. It's a call to be transparent, to let the light shine through you. Hypocrisy is to claim to be without sin when in fact you are saved by sin. But the opposite of hypocrisy isn't to be without sin so you can truly claim it. rather to make a true confession of our own sin, our own weaknesses. Making repentance not something that we did when we first became Christian. Repentance is the ongoing attitude of the heart every day for a Christian. The church isn't a club for those good people who've sorted their lives out. It's a community for sinners to come into the company of other sinners to receive Jesus' words of mercy and grace. To hear Jesus' words, I do not condemn you. Alongside Jesus' call, go and sin no more. We need to hear both from our brothers and sisters, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more, but more than that, we need to be walking together. We need to be side by side in our various battles with our sin and with our weaknesses. We need to love one another to speak the truth in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth. The truth without our own sinfulness, our own weakness, our own inability. And You have done that in Your Word, You have shown us by Your Lord that none of us seek You, our own religion, none of us is able to do what is right. But that You have showered us with mercy and grace by sending Your Son who you came and spoke the truth, who was the truth, who is the truth to us. And on that cross He revealed not only the, the deep dark horror of our sin, but he also revealed your lavish and bountiful grace that is there for all who will receive it. So Father, we receive that grace anew again this morning that we hear your strong disciplining word. We ask that we might be so filled with your spirit and with a love for your Son, that we will hate our own sin even before we spot it in others. That we will always be ready to turn in repentance and to trust uh, over and over again in uh, Jesus, who is always ready to forgive We So, praise in His name. Amen.